0: Previously, on Living and Effective, Season Two. Joybeth, you and I both had experiences of tragedy and pain in our lives. I've had my dad die, around the same time, actually, as my divorce.
1: From, like, childhood trauma to the death of my aunt who raised me, griefs are big to us. The point isn't for them to be compared. The point is actually just to kind of exist together.
0: Peter Popoff preaches the prosperity gospel in big letters.
2: How much did you get?
0: Uh,
2: $23,000.
0: $23,000. Todd Billings is the author in Rejoicing in Lament and
3: Remembrance, Communion, and Hope. I had been sick with a number of other things quite a few times. I didn't think much of it. But then he said that it was definitely cancer. So Todd Billings
0: has success, but he's dying. His life has a trajectory, but it's ending.
4: I
1: feel like this is a lot like life, where we have to hold the tension of finding happiness or success in one area, but losing it in another.
0: You want to move on from it. The next thing you know, you're sort of back at what feels like the beginning.
2: Well, it's certainly not linear. You can feel like you've gotten through a lot of it, and then feel like you're back at the beginning again. Denial functions like a drug for a broken heart. Part of that is just numbness. It's feeling like it can't be real. This can't be true. We can't absorb the reality, particularly if it were sudden and unexpected. But even if it were not, we disbelieve the loss for a while. It postpones the pain.
0: This is Diane Langberg, practicing psychologist and the author of Suffering in the Heart of God.
2: And actually, it's not always bad. In some ways, it helps us accept that tsunami of loss bit by bit, so we're not overwhelmed. So we can take in the truth, and then we have to back away. And then we take in a little more truth, and then we have to back away.
0: I'm Richard Clark.
1: And I'm Joy
2: Beth Smith.
0: The Christian Standard Bible and Christianity Today present Living and Effective, Season 2, a podcast about what happens when the Bible and humanity collide.
2: The place where you get some of these things so well expressed are in the Lament Psalms. The whole idea of lament is something that that Christendom, at least in the U.S., I think has lost.
0: Diane will be helping us use the stages of grief as a window into how the Bible meets us in our suffering.
2: We don't actively lament. I mean, we worship and follow the man of sorrows who had no place to lay his head.
0: We'll begin with denial and how it works its way into a biblical community. But first,
4: there's a man who has just been diagnosed with prostate cancer. The doctor wants to do surgery. You're afraid God is going to supernaturally touch you and heal you. Next time you go to the doctor, you're going to get a good report. Don't miss this miracle moment. You've got to act now. You've got to move now. God wants to move on your behalf, but you've got to use your faith now to see his miracle power released in your life. So right now we're
0: hearing tape of Peter Popoff. He's a prosperity gospel teacher who was really popular back in the 80s.
4: And Jesus, touch your people, Lord, with your mighty power. Oh God, I ask you to let that heavy burden roll away. Let the sickness flee away. as your people move in faith, even now in Jesus' mighty, matchless name I pray. Amen and
0: amen. So I'll be honest and say one of the reasons that we wanted to talk about Peter Popoff this season is because he's fascinating.
1: Yeah, I'm enchanted by him. We could not have found a person who actually was a better character.
0: Yeah, a better personification of the prosperity gospel. I mean, all the aspects of grief are highly individual, but in some cases they can be fed into by others. That's what Popoff's doing here.
5: Popoff, I think, had the virtue, if you want to call it that, of being the most audacious. He really was a Donald Trump figure in that he just realized that if you were shameless enough, you could get people on board.
0: That's Mark Oppenheimer. He's written this wild article for GQ about Popoff called Peter Popoff, the born-again scoundrel. The
5: image we have from Hollywood of the faith-healing preacher who's incredibly over-the-top, who puts his hands on you and starts, you know, screaming in tongues, the glossolalia, and then shoves you backward violently, takes your cane or your crutches and breaks them over his knee and says, the devil be out of you. And that's, Popoff gave us that image.
0: He's going to touch your body? You're not going to need to walk on a cane any longer. Off's ministry has two fronts. One is on TV, where he peddles his miracle spring water. The other is on the road, where he's doing the come on down style healing heard in this clip.
4: Can I just throw it up on the stage? Yes, yes. She said it's all right. This just... oh, there she goes. Come on, you can walk. You can walk. Come
5: on out. That is not what jim baker's faith healing looked like i mean Popoff was the down tent revival a rural preacher par excellence and his victims of his fraud were not exclusively but the most gullible and most helpless um, but those of course are the people with the greatest need to believe sometimes
2: guess how much money she got after you prayed with her and you sent her the miracle spring water
0: Crowd testimonials are a common feature on old pop-off broadcasts.
2: How much did you get?
0: Uh, 23000
2: 23000
5: He was always a complete dissembler and liar, and it's amazing how many people he took in. So his father, so he says, was a, uh, was a Pentecostal faith healer as well. I, I, I take everything Pop-Off told me, even the things I've been able to confirm, sort of, I take with a big grain of salt. He kind of was the, the MacGyver or the James Bond of televangelists, which is he would go anywhere, he would travel anywhere, he would do anything to get the gospel to people who didn't have it. In the 60s and 70s, he was a tent revival preacher, working his way up, doing the faith-healing thing. He also claimed to do these stunts like dropping Bibles um, off the coast of Turkey um, <laughs> so that they could find their way to heathens, you know, heathen Muslims. He also said he had smuggled thousands of Bibles into China. And people believed this. You know, For example, in 1982, the Associated Press said that Popov had used helium balloons to deliver Bibles and pamphlets uh, from Finland into the Soviet Union. Um, so this, that's the AP believing him. He had a TV show, and he was buying cable time, and he was appearing on Christian networks. And uh, so he also rode that wave that Jimmy Swaggart and and Jim Baker and the others were also riding in the 1980s.
0: Praise God. Thank you, Jesus.
4: I told you, God. Burned it out of there, supernatural.
5: I think Popoff's fans were a specific kind of Christian. Real Bible-reading fundamentalists who were turning to Popoff to interpret verses because they had no other interpretive Framework that is to say, they weren't interested in theology, and they weren't um, influenced by a particular denominational reading of the scriptures. They weren't, you know, they didn't know what Calvin would have taught them about that because they came out of a Reformed tradition, right? Or they didn't have a kind of Catholic catechetical sense of how to, of how the Christian message should be read in their lives, right? So Popoff was their exegete, was their interpreter. A lot of these people giving money they could ill afford to give. These were people who were living paycheck to paycheck. These are people who explicitly um, are in great debt. I mean, Popoff targets people who are, in negative cash flow situations, right? And because he's always, one of the things he promises is that people's debt can be cleared. He never explicitly says, if you give to me, your debt will be cleared. I mean, he's, he's very careful about staying on one side of the law, but the implication is clearly that people who are desperately poor can get back to zero, scratch their way back to zero by taking some of their social security check or disability check and giving it to him. People who have put their faith in these irrational quixotic measures it's easy to dismiss them and I too, I too often dismiss them as stupid or gullible or simpletons but often they're just very very desperate and um, it's not the case that wealthier societies don't succumb to these charlatans who play play on the irrational but I don't think they succumb to them as much or quite as badly. you know so long as we have a country where we have so many uninsured people for whom going to the doctor, Can mean financial ruin. That can only be good for Peter Popoff's bottom line. He's a doctor of last resort for people who don't have access to medical treatment.
4: All I heard in my spirit was an explosion, and the Lord said, Big. (laughs) Woo! And then I heard big miracles, big breakthroughs, big. (laughs) <laughs> and that's what God has for you. Big miracles, big breakthroughs,
5: big blessings. Pop-off is what psychologists call well-defended. A well-defended person is someone on whom therapy is very difficult because they simply won't do the work of introspection. Whom have I hurt? Who's hurt me? What are my struggles? What are my pains? How am I broken? What are the things I'm still failing at after all these years? You know, that kind of vulnerability is terrifying. And there are people who succeed in this world by simply pushing it so far down, by defending against it so strongly with so many fences around fences around fences that they end up being kind of functional in a way that is that they they keep getting up in the morning and barreling through their day and making it somehow. But at the cost of of having no authenticity or empathy. So one thing you know about these people is they never ever ask you about yourself. Right, which is actually very interesting about in a celebrity because a lot of celebrities, the way they seduce you is they actually are very fulsomely asking you, like, tell me about yourself, how are you, right? The Bill Clintons of the world, his genius was he always made you feel like you were the center of the universe, however sincere or fake it may have been. And then you take someone like Popoff and actually they're terrified of empathy because what would they find if they actually entered into an authentic I thou relationship with someone else? So instead, the only thing that can feed you because you don't have authentic human relations is more material possession <laughs> he lives in this gated community in california it's very hard to get in and i ended up um, just and i scaled some fences and ended up in this sort of at one point behind some razor wire and i kind of found another way around to that and i scaled another fence and finally i got inside the community and then i walked around a bunch of cul-de-sacs and eventually found myself outside the gate to his house. So there were like gates up, upon gates upon gates. I rang the doorbell and no one answered, but it was this extremely, you know, he it's a multi-million dollar house in this very, very exclusive gated community. And, you know, he's, he's nearly impossible to find. And then his office which is in out by Claremont, which is kind of in the California inland desert. Similarly, cameras everywhere, blackened windows, security guards, to the point where if you come and park in his parking lot and just kind of idle your engine and start taking some notes, as I did before I went up to knock on the door, the security guard comes out and knocks on your window and says, what are you doing here?
1: So I think it's clear through Pop-Off's ministry that we can see that denial has a tendency to isolate. And it creates this whole crazy alternative narrative where we feel the need to protect ourselves. So how do you you see your denial isolating you?
0: Yeah, I think I will go weeks without talking um, in depth about my real concerns. I think I'm exhausted by them. You have a
1: tendency to stuff it down and to kind of pack it away to to go home to act like your day was fine no to... I'm out
0: no i'm out that's what i do oftentimes is i will like i will like i need to rest i need to relax i need to unplug but by unplug i just mean from like work and stuff uh-huh. and and so i will like watch a lot of tv or i'll uh read a book i think it's those automatic things that tend to isolate me because it's like I don't want to be burdened with the responsibility of articulating with those closest to me what is happening to me and why I feel the way I do.
1: Yeah. Your autopilot is what Mm -hmm. gets you in trouble.
0: Right. And some people are on autopilot and they're watching TV late at night and they see someone like pop off.
1: I don't think so. No? I think that... The autopilot is a luxury mm. and almost a result of privilege in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, like you can go home and video game and that feeds the denial. You right. know, you can go home and wife and kids and just turn it off and that feeds the denial. Yeah. And, and it's a way to, to self-soothe. Yep. Um, but some people aren't afforded those privileges. hmm And so they have to kind of find other ways to enter into denial.
0: They're like, I do not have the money to pay my bills. And I have to convince myself this will change.
1: That's right. They don't have the same means of of self-soothing as you do. Mm -hmm. Um, They aren't afforded that same luxury. And so it's sort of like if they can't distract themselves in the same way, what will they turn to? That's right. And I think that's how Popoff enters the scene where he's like, oh, if you don't have the video games, if you don't have even the alcohol, if you don't even, if you don't want the drugs, if you don't want to deny in those ways, let me show you something else that will take away the pain, that will take away the cancer, that will take away the poverty. And... It does have a certain kind of allure, which is really scary.
4: Two weeks ago, I got $8,600 in paid mortgage. And I sent for the Miracle Spring water and I use it. And by the time I go to the doctor to do the surgery, it was gone.
5: People who are looking for a prophet, I mean, the prophet is going to seem outlandish, right? This is true of biblical prophets. It's true of people who decide that an authoritarian strongman in politics is their prophet. It's, It's seldom someone who's really laid back and chill and subtle.
0: Here's Mark Oppenheimer again.
5: He was a showman, as so many of these preachers were. They came out of a tradition where if you wanted to grab people on the radio dial or if you wanted them to come out for your Wednesday night or Saturday night or Sunday morning entertainment, they were competing against, you know, the picture show, the movies, um, the saloon, the gambling hall, the riverboats. They had to be um, every bit as captivating and flamboyant. And, you know, off was utterly willing to be that captivating and flamboyant. And of course, one of the ironies of the prosperity gospel is that when part of your flamboyance is that you yourself are dressed in super expensive clothes and drive super flashy cars and take super fancy vacations, people see it not as evidence of your perfidy, but as evidence that you're successful, that you've been touched by God. The bigger your mansion is, the more people believe that you earned it.
0: Misplaced faith is incredibly powerful. It can cause us to see miracles when there's only miracle water. It can lead us to help build mansions for men like Peter Popoff. And that same faith can also lull us into catatonic states, dulling our pain to bearable levels. Leaning into long-term denial feels good. It's like jumping into the deep end of a pool and sinking to the bottom. It's peaceful down there. Sound is muffled. The feeling of weightlessness is almost like painlessness. But it only lasts so long before we run out of breath. The prosperity gospel is just one version of something I struggle with myself. At its core, it's placing too much faith in God's gifts rather than God himself. Todd Billings, feeling the painful effects of his cancer every day, is often faced with a harsh reality. But when life deflates his denial, he finds comfort in a very particular
3: place. The Psalms have always had a special place for me, but it was much more pick and choose. The whole book of Psalms has become just a tremendous solace, just like a place where I just go and dwell and pray after the cancer diagnosis. There alone do I feel understood. It's in the presence of the Lord and in the honest presence of the psalmist crying out both praise and lament, all of it in hope, all of it in trust. While I don't have cancer
0: leading me down those paths of despair, work can be toil, and paranoid thoughts often leave me feeling useless and overlooked. Sometimes I feel as though my family would be better off without me. On Christmas and Father's Day, I miss my dad who died of cancer a few years ago. Work, family, relationships, these are good things ravaged by sin. And I feel it so acutely at times that I often wonder if there's something wrong with me.
6: Scripture
3: is wider and deeper than a lot of people assume when mm. it comes to questions of um, suffering and prosperity and this nexus of questions and even death and dying yeah some of the reason death and dying is 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 an important question for when we consider our kind of latent prosperity gospels mm-hmm. is because it's kind of the Achilles' heel of any prosperity gospel whether it's a whether it's a light form that um, is held by someone who would not at all want to be associated with a health and wealth preacher, or right. whether it's a hardcore form, dying and death is, it, it tends to be where these issues come up.
0: That's especially true for Costi Hen, who's been on a journey from one extreme to another when it comes to accepting the reality of our broken world.
6: I've often described our family dynamic in that ministry world as a hybrid between the royal family and the mafia. Add in the celebrity rock star flying by the seat of your pants attitude, and that would be how we lived and we did it.
0: I'm not sure if you recognize that last name, but it's kind of a big deal among a certain sect of Christians. Costi's family played a vital role in the rise of the prosperity gospel across the U.S. and Canada. A belief that God always wants us to have good health and financial success, and that it's up to us to claim it. For years, he toured with Benny Hinn's Miracle Crusades. I'd see Hinn on TBN all the time growing up, when I was flipping through the TV channels. Here's one of the many clips you can find of his healing bonanzas on YouTube.
5: How long have you had the hearing aids on? For three years.
0: Hinn's brand of showmanship is more subdued than pop-offs, but he still puts on a show whispering dramatically to demonstrate a claim of restored healing. Can
4: you hear me now? Yes. Can you hear me now? Yes. Can you hear me
0: now? Yes. Can you hear me now? Yes. Can you hear me now? Yes. 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 This is Kosti Hinn.
6: I became this heir apparent of their anointed mantle. Everybody was always prophesying over me as a young man that I'm going to be the next great faith healer you had this wealth of resources at your disposal, we would travel the world, living in mansions, driving, you know, Beamers, Benzes, and Bentleys, and everything else under the sun, flying on private planes, packing out stadiums, and preaching a gospel that is, Jesus died to save you, yeah, but he didn't just save you from sin or from hell, or to give you this new life in him. What all that unlocks is, everything that you really want, which is comfort, wealth, ease. You're going to get job promotions. You're going to have this wonderful time living life. And really living on earth is kind of just a taste of heaven. So John 10, 10, you know, the devil or the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That's kind of heaven, but it's the abundant life now. So you're getting your heavenly banker and he's going to unleash and dispense like an ATM money, healing, and blessings, and nothing in your life is ever going to be the same. It'll all be better. There'll be no challenges. Now, my uncle didn't participate with us, but all of us in the family, like next generation kids and others, even employees and whatnot, we're we're living it up. We would go from a healing crusade like gospel supposed service and then afterwards we would go out and security guards would escort us and we would go to nightclubs party drinking and doing all sorts of things that were anything but faithful to christianity and even just general moralism and like most people who live in the fog of hypocrisy i was totally lost in my sin, but pridefully and falsely convincing myself, you know, I'm just kind of a sinner, and I struggle with some things, but God totally loves me, and it's all good, and we're all going to get there. I'm young. I would justify it. I'm at a church, and the pastor assigns me, the passage was John 5, 1 through 17. It's the healing at the pool of Bethesda. In the passage I begin to observe, Jesus healed one man out of a multitude. Jesus healed the man immediately. And Jesus healed the man who didn't even know who he was. Well, as I'm reading through this, all three of those things really mess with my theology. And we had for years, we'd always promised God's gonna heal everybody. It's Mm -hmm. always God's will to heal. Um, If people are sick, it's their fault. They just don't have enough faith. They haven't given an offering or they're not going to the right anointed man's. You had the music, you had the fanfare, you had the offering, you had the stories, you had the man in the white suit or the special songs you sang, this whole song and dance to get people healed. And we used to always talk about the atmosphere of healing. You need to get around the atmosphere of healing. And I'm thinking, Jesus just went around and said, be healed it was real healing power it wasn't some show so i grab a commentary that my pastor had given me and macarthur writes in there the cruelest lie of faith healers today is that people who fail to get healed are guilty of unbelief or negative confession or they didn't give an offering or what have you jesus is a sovereign healer he heals according to his will he's a sovereign lord and here is a moment where he compassionately and lovingly heals this man out of his own sovereign choice. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I began to cry as I studied. It hit me like a ton of bricks. It was like all the questions I ever had were little cracks in the dam, so to speak, of my theology. This one blew the thing wide open. I told the Lord, I'm sorry for all the things I ever said, taught, and participated in. I repented of my sin. I said, I vow to preach the true gospel. I'm gonna study. I'm gonna learn the truth about scripture. And I wanna tell people the truth, no matter what that means. The prosperity gospel is at its core. It's pride, it's greed, it's a lust for power. It's all the things that God through the true gospel, calls his people out from and says, no more of that. Turn away from that. Turn to me.
0: We didn't need to spend six episodes on why the prosperity gospel doesn't work. The whole thing kind of falls apart when you start picking at it. God promises us so much more than health and wealth. And to turn those promises into currency for a promotion at work or a sweet parking spot, even an encouraging medical scan result, is really just to warp that hope into something less satisfying. But just understanding why that appeal is rooted in something shallow doesn't mean we're immune to it. Not too long after Costi stepped away from that ministry, he found his desire to trust God, even in the broken moments of his life, challenged in one of the most unthinkable ways possible.
6: We have a one-year-old. Our son Timothy will turn one in just a few days, and he's been diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. And do I really want, you think that's what I want? I'm going, yeah, God, give give my one-year-old guy a, a nice, you know, journey with cancer so I can be more spiritual. Nobody wants these things.
0: So Peter Popoff wasn't unique in his ability to exploit the desperate and despairing. And let's be clear, we see these ideas everywhere. Whenever you attribute an illness to a lack of faith, or someone's singleness to a lack of righteousness, have you ever grown accustomed to a feeling of safety and security? Are you convinced that God will make a way for you to work full-time doing exactly what you feel called to do? That's the same kind of thinking seeping in. There's always been a reciprocal relationship between the prosperity gospel and denial.
6: Death is something that we did not ever talk about growing up, and if you ever did, you were rebuked. I can't speak for every prosperity preacher. I'll just talk to you about the Hymn Empire. There is no topic more scary than death, more than sickness, death. In our home, if we brought up death, we were told, do not speak about death, lest you invite the spirit of death into our home.
0: So we've seen some of the really grim ways that denial can function through a prism of prosperity teaching. But I did want Diane Langberg to help me understand what she meant when she said that denial's not always bad. Do you think that Jesus experienced denial in some way?
2: Well, no, because he's truth. He never left the truth. However, he did say, if it's possible, take this away. That's not denial, but it sure is resistance.
0: (laughs) So resistance is part of denial. then?
2: Yes. And so is shock. Denial doesn't just mean I don't believe that this happened. I'm going to pretend it didn't happen. That's certainly one form of it. But shock is a huge part of it. Resistance, you know, just how, how can this be? How can I do this? I mean, that basically is what Jesus was saying. How can I do this?
0: When we were in the planning stages for this uh, podcast, we were sort of exploring the question of whether there was healthy versions of each one of these um, stages, and then we got to denial and you and I this is where we had a um (laughs) what you might call an argument
1: (laughs) creative differences
0: we had creative differences this is like such a weird position to take I was like every stage can be healthy but not denial
1: you said that just you arbitrarily. Said all of them except denial,
0: which is like if you're de- designing like a, a game, a board game, just to have an arbitrary rule in there, like, but not this one. <laughs> right. It's like bad game design. Yeah, that's terrible. But you were You were like really passionate that denial has a healthy.
1: Yes, at the end of the day, throughout the Bible, we see a desire for justice, and I think that denial is. The slow acceptance that justice has not been met in some way, Mm -hmm. that the unjust has happened. And it's just our eking understanding of this unjust thing has just occurred. And, you know, what is now a natural response to that? And I I think I'm okay with that. I'm okay with denial being the our brains adapting to the unjust.
0: Our brains as like computers that are not programmed for injustice. That's
1: right. Yeah. And especially because of the Bible's kind of like structure and love of justice and mm-hmm. my own personal love of justice, where I I can really get behind something where it's like, yes, your brain sh- short circuits almost.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And one path a lot of people take is to go from this didn't happen to this did happen but shouldn't have. And that's where we get into anger. Here's Todd Billings.
3: If you look at even some of the popular literature on this, there's a book called um, Confessions of a Funeral Director where he grew up in kind of a fundamentalist type household where it was always everything was death negative he said so death was only conceived of as an enemy the result of sin you know illness all the result of sin in a very linear very direct sort of way and then he moves to a more progressive direction which for him is a death positive narrative. You know, death is just part of being human. It's completely natural. It's just part of, you know, God's created intent. Some of what I've found as I've engaged scripture with this is that we have what you might call death negative and death positive narratives within scripture. There is a sense in which, especially in the Augustinian tradition, which draws upon scripture for support that death is death is just irrational like it's not God's intention it's a result of fall it's the last enemy to be destroyed Mm -hmm. and yet even in the early centuries of Christianity and you see this in Irenaeus in the second century there's this other narrative as well within scripture Mm -hmm. which is you see it with the patriarchs who died Full of years with a sense of completion. There's, with the number of narratives, the sense in which, you know, death is connected to just being a creature.
0: Where Todd is drawn deeper into grief and acceptance, Peter Popoff has burrowed into denial making a career off the idea that those who were most faithful would be exempt from life's troubles. But in the end, even he couldn't escape a pretty bad day.
5: In 1986, um, a group of people, including the magician James Randi, a small but notable group of magicians who used their own understanding of how people can be deceived, because they learned it for their own magic, to expose people who they think are using uh, deception in cruel rather than entertaining ways. Within the magical community, there's a concept of ethics, which is that you shouldn't ever lead people to believe that you're actually, that you actually have metaphysical powers. Like they should know that they're being deceived by human sleight of hand. And that's what makes it so amazing is that it's a human being who's mastered card manipulation or pulling rabbits from hats or, or, Optical illusions in a way to deceive them. And that's ethical. They're paying to be tricked pleasurably. And James Randi is kind of the king of this school of, of magical debunkers. So he likes debunking those who claim that their powers come from God. And he took a radio scanner to a Peter Popoff revival, and the scanner pretty quickly picked up on, on Popoff's wife, Liz, feeding him names and illnesses of people in the audience and Popoff had an earpiece, and he would hear Liz say something.
4: She's about to get rid of the walker. You want to get rid of this walker, sister? Oh, glory. How long have you been walking on that walker? About three years. Three years? She was at 1627 10th Street. 1627 10th Street? Is that right? That's right. She has arthritis all over. Burning this arthritis right out of your body.
5: And Randy got a recording of this, and he took it to The Tonight Show. Johnny Carson, also by the way a former magician, who really harbored a great disdain for charlatans.
4: In the name of Jesus. Jody Dean. Jody Dean. Is it Jody? Jody? Dean? Dean.
5: Jody Dean. And Johnny Carson, Played the tape and it made national news, and all of a sudden Popoff's money dried up for a while. And in 1987, Popoff had to file for bankruptcy.
0: Popoff is an unethical magician. He'd show you a trick, but he was never willing to let you look behind the curtain. As a result, he gained a captive audience. But true relationships are built not by giving a great performance, but by letting others in on the secret.
2: If you can't, you're
0: in trouble. Living and Effective is a collaboration between CT Creative Studio and the Christian Standard Bible. All of Season 2 is available now at livingandeffective.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Living and Effective is hosted by me, Richard Clark. It's written and produced by me, my co-hosts, Joybeth Smith, and Cray Allred. Additional writing by Nick Reinerson, Michael Wojcik, and Nick Thompson. Music from Yawns, Sweeps, and the Grey Havens. Audio from the television program, Peter Popoff, Miracle Ministry. Audio recorded by James Randy. And audio from a television broadcast of a Benny Hinn Ministries event was used in this episode. On the next chapter of Living and Effective, Season 2. How did you expect your life to go?
3: I would find an institution, whether in East Africa or in the U.S., would put down roots and start a long career.
2: We feel betrayed by God. He obviously is the one who could have stopped it, and he didn't.
3: Psalm 88 ends with, Darkness is my only companion. There are times where that's the end of my prayer. I can't make much more sense of things than that.
1: One time I had this brain scan, and the lady basically said all of the emotional parts of your brain fire a little overactive, except the anger sector, which is a little underactive. Something from your childhood told you to repress the anger part of your brain
6: you think that's what i want i'm going Mm. yeah god give give my one-year-old guy a, a nice you know journey with cancer so i can be more spiritual nobody wants these things
3: i've lived long enough but why does god want to take away my kid's dad